0: Thank you, Mr. Newman. Uh, uh, Mrs. Williams and I are uh, are glad to be here in this city where we have so many friends. Uh, It is one of our favorite cities. Uh, In fact, uh, in 1952, uh, we came here on our honeymoon. And that was right after uh, Lincoln and his generals had been published. And I had received a check uh, representing more money than I had ever thought existed. And uh, we came to Chicago, and people in Louisiana couldn't understand uh, why I had decided to come to Chicago. Nobody in Louisiana went on a honeymoon went to Chicago. Uh, They they went to New Orleans or the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And and people said, what's he doing taking her to Chicago? And a girl from Indiana who worked at the LSU Press had the answer. Uh, She said he is fulfilling the dream of every middle western boy he's taking his best girl to chicago with plenty of money <laughs> uh, while we were here uh, we came back to the hotel one night and as we were going through the lobby uh, we got the idea that uh, we should send a telegram to our uh, daughter in louisiana and i emphasize this was 1952 and so i composed the telegram and it said uh, it gets more wonderful all the time. And the woman who took the telegram looked at me fondly and smiled and said, it's the same, isn't it, no matter how old you are? <laughs> well, I can now say today that I am in the uh, third age of man. You know, the three ages of man, a youth, a middle age, and you're looking wonderful. <laughs> Uh, Several people asked me tonight uh, uh, how long I was going to talk. Uh, Asked me apprehensively, I thought. (laughs) And uh, no applause, please. Uh, And and I said that I I didn't know uh, because I had never given this talk before. It's completely new. And uh, so uh, uh, we will have to feel our way. Uh, I once wrote about U.S. Grant... Uh, Nothing like uh, beginning a speech by quoting from one of your own books, I think. Uh, I once wrote about U.S. Grant uh, that he had uh, one of the most uh, remarkable lives in American history. Uh, No other life was quite like it. Uh, His career before the Civil War uh, can be said uh, fairly uh, to have been a failure. Uh, He came from a family of average economic circumstances, he attended West Point, uh, graduated with an average record, uh, accepted a commission as a junior officer in the Army, and served a period of years uh, not happily in the regular service. Uh, the conditions under which he left the service uh, have been disputed, but I think it's safe to say uh, that neither he nor the Army uh, regretted the separation. Uh, he. Uh, came back to St. Louis, where his father-in-law lived, uh, attempted various uh, business efforts uh, unsuccessfully, selling real estate uh, farming. And then finally, he accepted a job at his father's uh, leather goods store uh, in Galena, Illinois. And this was where he was working uh, in 1861 uh, when the Civil War started. The war comes, and then suddenly, or so it seems... Uh, or so, and it seemed this way to people then. Uh, Grant became great. Uh, He uh, starts out uh, as a colonel, Uh, he's a unit commander, he rises steadily, uh, commands an army, and finally commands all the armies uh, of the United States. Uh, He emerged from the war, uh, I think, uh, uh, the greatest uh, general of the war. Uh, The Northern hero, and General in Chief of the armies of the United States. Uh, Inevitably, uh, he ran for president and was twice elected and served in one of the most difficult times in our history. After he left the chief office, uh, he was a a kind of unofficial first citizen, uh, respected uh, even though his most prominent business venture collapsed. He traveled around the world and was received with honor by kings and heads of governments. Uh, Then he wrote his memoirs, uh, one of the great uh, personal works on the Civil War, and perhaps one of the great personal works in all the history of military writing. Uh, Mark Twain uh, thought that Grant's memoirs was the most remarkable work of its kind since Caesar's commentaries. And it has been admired since by such discerning critics as Matthew Arnold and Gertrude Stein. Uh, finally, he, he had one of the saddest deaths in American history. I think of nothing more pathetic than the old man uh, dying of cancer, uh, striving uh, to finish his memoirs uh, before our, and doing so uh, one week before his death. Now, all this happens after 1865, and yet it is the almost universal judgment, I would say, uh, of writers, uh, historians, observers, uh, students, uh, television commentators, I'm going down the list here all the time, uh, that that Grant's life after the war, like his life before the war, was a failure. And this is not because he failed in business, uh, and that failure of creating a need for money uh, caused him to write his memoirs. But the reason for this verdict of failure uh, is because of his record in the presidency, or what that record is thought to be. Grant, the president, has been the target of unremitting and unceasing criticisms and sneers. Uh, one standard political text uh, states that Grant, as president, uh, that his political sense. Uh, hardly equal that uh, of a Sioux chief. Uh, Edmund uh, Wilson, the literary critic, wrote, one can hardly say that Grant was president except that he presided at the White House. And then perhaps the supreme uh, political snare was flung by Senator Wayne Morse, uh, who said that President Eisenhower's uh, great achievement uh, was that he made General Grant look like a statesman. Well, uh, intellectuals uh, are perhaps uh, too prone to cling the clever snare, uh, particularly at a simple man who is not articulate. And here we would have two simple men who are not articulate: uh, Grant and Eisenhower. Uh, we all recognize, of course, that language. Uh, The the power to use language is important in a leader. Uh, This was one of Lincoln's uh, great uh, strengths, uh, that he could compose uh, great uh, state papers. Uh, And language is very important today. Uh, Somebody has said that the president is many things, uh, but one of his most important functions is uh, that he is a teacher, uh, that he teaches the nation. And in order to teach the nation, he's got to speak to the nation. Uh, in uh, moving, eloquent language uh, that he writes himself or has written by his speech writers. Uh, uh, language is important, and, and yet I think that intellectuals tend to make too much of it, uh, to uh, place too much emphasis on what today uh, is called style. And often intellectuals are so impressed by somebody who can use the language, who does have style. Uh, that they uh, uh, don't look for the substance. Uh, Of course, it's desirable when style and substance can be combined, uh, but style may often exist uh, without uh, substance. Well, uh, Grant, of course, uh, received criticisms and snares even in his own time, and even from members of his own uh, Republican Party. Uh, Senator Ben Wade of Ohio once said, "Uh, I would like to know how he stood on the great issues before us, whether he, whether he was for President Johnson or for Congress. This was before Grant became president when he was general-in-chief. Or, or what the devil he was for. But I could get nothing out of him. As quick as I'd talk politics, he'd talk horses. Well, in these times, a man may be all right on horses and all wrong on politics. And General Benjamin F. Butler who had had his troubles with uh, General Grant during the war, uh, said in the election of 1868 that he hoped Grant would be elected president so that the country could see if there was any difference between a drunken tailor and a drunken tanner. Uh, uh, Henry Adams, uh, a Republican intellectual, uh, visited Grant in the White House uh, and was appalled. Uh, Of course, Henry Adams was appalled by almost everything. Uh, Henry Adams wrote, a single word with Grant convinced him, this is written in the third person, that for his own good, the fewer words he risked, the better. The type was pre-intellectual, archaic, and would have seemed so even to the cave dwellers. Men whose energies were the greater, the less they wasted on thought. Men who sprang from the soil to power, apt to be distrustful of themselves and of others, shy, jealous, sometimes vindictive, more or less dull in outward appearance, always needing stimulants, but for whom action was the highest stimulant, the instinct to fight. Such men were forces of nature, energies of the prime, but they made short work of scholars, which is why Henry Adams, I think, decided to get out of the White House quick uh, after that visit. It is also the verdict of uh, uh, history, uh, or most historians, Uh, that Ulysses S. Grant was a dull, uh, unimaginative, uh, insensitive, uh, unlearned man. Uh, Often quoted uh, is his remark when uh, somebody asked him what he thought about Venice, and he said it was a nice city, but it would be better if it was drained. Uh, 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 Grant, obviously, did not mean draining the water out of the canals. He was talking about draining the sewage. Uh, but but the remark is stuck uh, with a different interpretation, I think, than he intended. Uh, uh, People who have studied him, of course, know that he uh, was not uh, dull, uh, unimaginative, or or ignorant. Uh, He was a very complex man. Uh, This man who had commanded huge armies uh, and uh, had seen battles, had commanded battles at which thousands of young men had died, uh, had a curious... Uh, uh, almost an abnormal tenderness uh, about animals uh, and uh, was shocked and grieved uh, when he saw anybody uh, abusing animals, uh, horses, for example, uh, in the army. Uh, And we who know him, uh, also know uh, that he was a man of the ready wit. As for example, during the war, uh, when he was asked to suggest an assignment uh, for a general who had proved universally incompetent, uh, he suggested to the War Department, Why not station him someplace on the distant northern frontier, charged with the duties of detecting rebel conspiracies in Canada? And uh, the President, uh, perhaps his uh, uh, best remark, uh, when he came into conflict with Charles Sumner, uh, Senator Charles Sumner, uh, Chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs, it's nothing new for Presidents to have conflicts with the Chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs. Uh, and uh, he and uh, Sumner had come into conflict over the uh, uh, issue of annex in Santo Domingo uh, and uh, talking with a friend one day, this friend about Sumner, this friend said, you know, Sumner doesn't believe in the Bible. And President Grant said, of course not, he didn't write it. <laughs> <coughs> uh, uh, people have written about Grant have speculated uh, that they assume that he failed as president and they have speculated as to the reasons why. Uh, In their minds, he was a failure as president. Uh, Some of these explanations are, of course, uh, too simplistic. Uh, He was a man of mediocre ability. He had had no political experience. Uh, He had no aptitude uh, for the job of president. On the other hand, uh, some of them uh, have been fairly uh, sophisticated. Uh, For example, Mr. Bruce Catton and others uh, have speculated uh, that Grant was the kind of person uh, who could be great only in one situation. And his situation was war. He could be a great soldier. so he was a failure before the war, he was great during the war, and then after the war, he, he, he goes down. Uh, maybe this is so, uh, uh, that uh, Grant could be great uh, only in one situation. On the other hand, we might remember uh, the observation of the British uh, soldier and military writer, General uh, J.F.C. Fuller, uh, who said that only a hair uh, separates uh, the great soldier from the great civilian. Uh, the captain and others have said uh, that uh, in, uh, when Grant became president, uh, that his role called for him to transcend the national character. But instead of transcending it, he embodied it. And these writers have speculated uh, that Grant uh, misunderstood uh, the role of the president, or to put it in another way, that he had a faulty uh, concept uh, of the presidency, uh, which was the result of his military background. Uh, we have had uh, only three professional soldiers who have, been, who have served as president, uh, Washington, Andrew Jackson, for example, were not professional soldiers, that is men who have uh, devoted the greater part of their mature life uh, to the Army. But we have had three professional soldiers as president, Uh, Zachary Taylor, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Zachary Taylor uh, served for too short a time uh, to be judged as a soldier president, uh, two years at the most, and he had spent his professional career in a very small regular army uh, that was really not uh, isolated uh, from uh, civilian life. There are, however, uh, parallels uh, between all three of these men: uh, Taylor, Grant, and Eisenhower. Uh, all three uh, affected to be and possibly wanted to be uh, above politics. Uh, all three. Uh, uh, gave the impression at times uh, that they would accept the nomination of both parties uh, in order to uh, uh, unify the country. Uh, The greatest parallels, I think, are between uh, uh, Grant and uh, Eisenhower, uh, particularly in the concept the two men had of the office of president. Uh, Both Grant and Eisenhower, uh, I think, uh, conceived of the president as an administrative official who executed the will of the people. As Grant said when he met with the Republican National Committee uh, after he had been nominated, if chosen to fill the high office for which you have selected me, I will give to its duties the same energy, the same spirit, and the same will that I have given to the performance of all duties which have devolved upon me here to follow. Whether I shall be able to perform these duties to your entire satisfaction, time will determine. You have truly said, in in the course of your address, that I shall have no policy of my own to enforce against the will of the people. And in his letter of acceptance, he wrote, new political issues, not foreseen, are constantly arising and the views of the public on them are constantly changing. And a purely administrative officer, that's the president, should always be left free to execute the will of the people. Well, of course, the question is, uh, how does an administrative officer, like the president, as Grant conceived it, how does he determine the will of the people? Well, as General Grant saw it, and as I think General Eisenhower saw it, the will of the people was most clearly expressed by the Congress, which represented the people. And this may have been an outgrowth of their army experience, the army having always looked to Congress as the agency which created the rules and regulations uh, of the armed forces, Uh, that they looked on Congress as the chief source of authority in the American system. Uh, That is, neither one seemed to clearly realize that the three separate branches of the American government, uh, the Congress, uh, the President, uh, the courts, were equal and coordinate branches. Uh, Therefore, say uh, writers and critics like Catton and others, uh, General Grant did not lead and General Eisenhower did not lead as president. That is, they did not attempt to influence uh, the uh, uh, actions of Congress in deciding legislation. They enforced the will of Congress, which was the will of the people. Although Grant was certainly more active as a leader toward the end of his second term and and, uh, General Eisenhower uh, in 1959. Uh, Mr. Catton concluded with an interesting observation. Uh, He said that most people uh, tend to fear a soldier president as a man, a possible man on horseback. But he said, uh, a soldier president is not likely to use too much power, but to use too little. Well, we have a similar analysis from Professor uh, David Potter uh, uh, one of the contemporary great historians. Uh, and, and Potter commented on the uh, sureness of political sense in appointments that Grant had exhibited in the army, uh, especially in 1864 uh, when he came east, uh, and, uh, or, although he technically did not command the Army of the Potomac, uh, he traveled with it and actually commanded it. Uh, and, and, and Potter said, uh, he, he, of course, everybody knows this, he was stepping into a very difficult situation." The Eastern generals resented it. And yet, Grant did an awfully uh, deft and subtle job here uh, of, of, of operating uh, this Eastern Army of the Potomac. Uh, and this was recognized by contemporaries. Uh, Charles Francis Adams, Jr., uh, much more acute uh, than his brother Henry uh, uh, wrote of, of Grant in 1864. Meanwhile, worked in the Army things meanwhile work in the Army charmingly. Uh, Grant is certainly an extraordinary man. Uh, He does not look it uh, and might uh, pass well enough for a dumpy and slouchy little subaltern, very fond of smoking. Uh, Such being his appearance, however, I do not think that any intelligent person could watch him uh, even from a distance uh, without concluding that he is a remarkable man. Uh, He handles those around him so quietly and well. He so evidently has the faculty of disposing of work and managing men. He is cool and quiet, almost stolid, and and as it's stupid in danger, and in a crisis, he is one against whom all around, uh, whether few in number or a great army, would instinctively lean. He is a man of the most exquisite judgment and tact. See how he has handled this army. He took command under the most unfavorable circumstances, jealousy between East and West, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of the Southwest. That general feeling that the officers from the West were going to swagger over those here. And finally, that universal envy which success creates and which is always ready to carp at it. The moment I came to headquarters, I saw that though nothing was said, yet the materials were all ready for an explosion at the first mistake Grant made. All this has passed away, and now Grant has this army as, fir- as firmly as he ever had that of the Southwest. And Potter, uh, speculating on this sureness of touch that Grant chose during the war, uh, in, in, in picking subordinates, in, in administering uh, the armies. Uh, Potter suggests that in war, Grant had an overriding purpose, a goal, and that this purpose stirred him to action and decision. And, and contemporary observers had, had, had noticed this. Uh, one an Englishman by the name of Atkinson uh, said, uh, you see Grant around the camp? And and he seems to be stolid, Uh, he's not stirred up about anything. And then uh, a a, a battle in Uh, And and this man uh, is changed. Uh, It it is a uh, a stimulus to him. And Professor Potters thought that as president, uh, Grant uh, had no challenge. And therefore, as president, he lost his purpose as he had when he was a lieutenant in the regular army before the war. Well, uh, the the critics of Grant and the the writers who have tried to evaluate him uh, have not, it seems to me, uh, considered sufficiently uh, the time in which he had to act or the problems that he had to face. Uh, Think of them for a moment. Uh, uh, Grant was president during Reconstruction. And this is one of the most trying and terrible times in American history. A great civil war had ended. A whole section of the United States had attempted to secede, it had been defeated. On what conditions would it be restored to the Union? Uh, Three and a half or more million uh, uh, Negro slaves had been freed as a result of the war. Uh, What was their status going to be in American society and who uh, was going to determine it? Uh, This was an era of tremendous economic expansion, both in industry and agriculture. Uh, that comes to an end in 1873 uh, with one of the great uh, depressions in American history. And this was also, to use Mark Twain's title, it's been so widely used, The Gilded Age, an age of materialism, corruption, uh, cynicism, uh, worship of success, uh, worship of the accumulation of money. Uh, We don't know why these periods come in American history. We have the period after the Civil War. We have the period after World War I. Uh, maybe it's possible to sustain for just so long uh, a, a people uh, in an idealistic movement or crusade. See, we'd have the idealism of the anti-slavery crusade, the idealism of the war. Uh, at a later time, we'd have the idealism of the progressive movement, the idealism of World War I. And then you, you inevitably, I think, uh, get these uh, moral letdowns. Uh, This was the time when the word politician became a dirty or a derogatory word in American history. Before the Civil War, the word politician had been a complimentary word. Uh, It meant uh, uh, somebody skilled in the art of politics, meaning the art of government. And the smartest young boys or young men uh, went into politics. Now after the war, the smartest young minds go into business to make a million dollars or more. Uh, and the word politician comes to denote uh, somebody uh, who is not particularly able, uh, but who is certainly venal, corruptible. He's just a politician. Uh, as Mark Twain said, uh, there goes a politician, uh, I mean a so-and-so, but why do I repeat myself? And on another occasion, Mark Twain said uh, he had got so that he could look on a congressman uh, without awe, uh, even without embarrassment. Uh, At the same time, uh, this is a period of uh, uh, bitter partisan and sectional animosities. The Republican Party, uh, at the end of the war, uh, regarded itself as a very special party. And in the North, it was regarded as a very special party by uh, millions of people. It was the glorious patriotic party which had won the war and saved the Union. It was a party of uh, Lincoln and Emancipation, and in some parts of the North, Republicanism was literally a species of religion, one of the eternal verities. As one Republican senator said, the Republican Party contains all the manufacturers in the country, all the skilled laborers, all the soldiers, church members, preachers, teachers, and prohibitionists. You can see what this leaves the Democrats. uh, and and the senator added that the Republican Party gives honest, wise, safe, liberal, progressive American counsel, while the Democrats give dishonest, unwise, unsafe, illiberal, obstructive, un-American counsel. And he described the Republican Convention of 1880 as a scene of indescribable sublimity, comparable in grandeur and impressiveness to the mighty torrent of Niagara Falls. <laughs> and another Republican wrote, both in the purity of its doctrines, the beneficent sweep of its measures, in its courage, its steadfastness, its fidelity in its achievements, and in its example, the Republican Party is the most resplendent political organization the world has ever seen. Uh, The Republicans uh, painted themselves that way, and and they believed the picture to be true. And they painted the Democrats uh, in a certain way. I might say here that the Democrats uh, uh, in this period are really uh, a very ineffective political party. And ineffective because they are tied to a historical past. And that, uh, I will say, is a, a states' rights past. I don't mean states' rights in the southern sense of the state being able to secede from the Union. States' rights in that in the modern age of industry and technology, uh, all Democrats, or most Democrats, uh, believed in a system whereby the national government did hardly anything uh, to control or to stimulate uh, the economy. And just as the Republicans considered themselves as the party of patriotism, they conceived, and many of them sincerely, of the Democratic Party as the party of treason. Uh, This was when in campaigns, whenever Republican orators uh, wanted to avoid an issue, uh, they engaged in the technique of what was called waving the bloody shirt. Recalling the emotions of the war. A typical bloody shirt effusion uh, by Senator Oliver Morton of Indiana, and this is typical of many, went this way every unregenerate rebel calls himself a Democrat. Every bounty jumper, every deserter, every sneak who ran away from the draft calls himself a Democrat. Every man who murdered Union prisoners, who invented dangerous compounds to burn steamboats in northern cities, who contrived hellish schemes to introduce in the northern city's yellow fever, calls himself a Democrat. This is a Republican charge that the South in the war had, had, had tried to use germ warfare. Uh, of course, the charge wasn't true, but in, 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 you notice the transition here, uh, uh, Confederates had tried to use germ warfare. Uh, they were Democrats, therefore all Democrats uh, had believed in germ warfare. Uh, every dishonest contractor, every dishonest paymaster, every officer in the army who was dismissed for cowardice calls himself a Democrat. In short, the Democratic Party may be described as a common sewer and a loathsome receptacle. (laughs) But uh, the tone of politics in the Gilded Age was set in the presidential election of 1868. And it's in that election that Ulysses S. Grant was nominated as the presidential candidate of the Republicans in a convention meeting in this city. And the night before the regular Republican convention met, there was a meeting of Republican soldiers and sailors. And at this meeting, uh, General Grant's father, uh, Jesse Grant, was brought to the platform and presented to the audience, and he was cheered. And he said, what have I done that I should be called upon by the braves of the nation to speak to them? And somebody in the audience yelled out, I suspect on cue, you had a son, that's enough. And the campaign was off to an intellectual start. Uh, When the regular Republican convention met and the time came to make nominations, uh, Illinois was recognized, and there rose in the Illinois delegation that dramatic, charismatic figure, General John A. uh, Blackjack Logan. And he made what I think must be the shortest nominating speech on record. He said, then, sir, in the name of the loyal citizens and soldiers and sailors of this great republic, in the name of loyalty, liberty, humanity, and justice, I nominate this candidate for the chief magistrate of this nation, Ulysses S. Grant. With 650 delegates, and guess what? Grant got 650 votes. Uh, uh, in the election of 1868, uh, Grant defeated the Democratic candidate, uh, Horatio Seymour. And before people... Uh, level off on General Grant, I think they ought to think a little bit about Horatio Seymour, uh, who is a typical Northern Democrat of the time, uh, 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 rather uh, uh, insignificant-looking person. Uh, as uh, one observer said, he had a face that looked like an outlined riddle. Uh And uh, during the war, he'd been Democratic governor of New York State. And he had actually said during the war, when the government was resorting to things like conscription. He said, we are against treason in the South. We have got to be equally alert against treason in the North. And the centralizing war efforts of the United States government, Horatio Seymour, stigmatized as treason. Uh, This was a man, I would say, lost to reality. Uh, During the war, he actually asked President Lincoln to suspend the draft law while he got a, a, a test case in the courts as to whether Congress had the right to conscript men. And Lincoln said, my dear Governor, I have no objection to getting a test case, but I'm certainly not going to suspend the law for a year or so while this case runs through the courts. This would be to throw away the war. And Governor Seymour could not understand that. Uh, and before we level off on General Grant, too, I think we might think about the man he defeated for the presidency in 1872, the candidate of the liberal Republicans and the Democrats, Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune. Think of what might have happened to this country if Horace Greeley had been president Horace Greeley, well, even his friends were horrified when he was nominated. As one of them said, Greeley is an interesting national curiosity in whom we take pride and like to show off. but for him to run for the presidency, is would be a tragedy for himself and the nation. Horace Greeley, uh, uh, one of the great American eccentrics, uh, his handwriting was a national scandal. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to look at it, look at it, but don't try to read it. It was said that in the New York Tribune office, Greeley, the publisher, and editor of the Tribune, that there was only one person who could read Greeley's handwriting, and that was an office boy. Whenever Greeley sent out an editorial, they'd get this boy to translate it so the editorial could be set up. And one time, the reporters just had some fun and went down to a local butcher shop, as it was called then. And they uh, got the foot off of a chicken, and they brought this chicken back to the office and daubed it in ink, and then they splashed it all over a page. And then they called this kid up and they said, uh, "Really, just sent this editorial out. Now uh, we, we want you to translate it. And the boy sat down, he worked, he worked, and he finally said, I got all but this one word down here in the corner. <laughs> he said, I've going to ask really what it is. So he walked in the office, held the sheet of paper out to Mr. Greeley, and said, uh, I, I got this thing worked out. What's this word down here in the corner? And Greeley looked at it and told him. <laughs> that kind of sneaks up on me, doesn't it? But, <clears throat> uh, uh, I, I think that, that the critics of, of, of General Grant uh, 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 ought to uh, speculate on this. Uh, who is it that could have been elected president this time that would have done a greatly better job as president than Grant, or even as good. And I think if you run down the list, you're not going to come up with very much. Maybe maybe Charles Francis Adams, I don't know. But I doubt that he could be elected. This is not a period that sees uh, great political leaders. Uh, In these difficult times, of course, a great and exquisite politician was called for, and Abraham Lincoln. There was only one Lincoln. Uh, Grant struggled through two terms of this difficult time. He surmounted some of his problems, and he didn't do nearly as badly as he has been supposed to do. I think he showed sound leadership and good sense in the solution he proposed for the currency problem, the Resumption Act to keep the greenbacks and yet make them redeemable in gold, uh, which satisfied both creditors and debtors. Uh, He supported reconstruction and showed a real sympathy for the aspirations of the freedmen, although toward the end of his term, following a national trend of opinion, he became skeptical uh, about the desirability of using troops to support uh, the Republican governments in the South. And at times, he had startling flashes of the modern age. During the Depression of 1873, uh, thinking about the unemployed, he said, why don't we get an appropriation from Congress and have the national government employ these men on public works. Well, leaders like James A. Garfield were supposed to be real smart men, were horrified. My God, Mr. President, this is communism. You know, you can't do anything like that. Well, if they told him that, of course, uh, he believed it. But it was a very humane and sensible idea. And he always remained popular. At the end of his second term, he was about as popular as he'd been at the beginning of his first term. And I suspect that if he had wanted to make a try for a third term, that he could have made it. Uh, Justice General Eisenhower was as popular at the end of his second term as he had been at any time during his terms. And if the Republicans hadn't been so short-sighted as to get that two-term amendment in the Constitution, you see, uh, Eisenhower, I'm sure, uh, would have been a, 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 a third-term president. And the fact that Grant remains so popular ought to, ought to interest, I think, some of these critics and wonder why. Well, maybe it's because uh, he was uh, not just a president, but that he was a legend. Uh, as uh, has been written about him, mention that monosyllabic name, and the prosaic laborer, farmer, clerk, or businessman for once in his life saw a vision. It was a vision of four years of terror and glory. Painted on the clouds above his farmer's shop, he saw the torrent of muddied blue uniforms rallying on the bluffs of Shiloh. He saw the night ripped by shells and rockets as gunboats spouting fire race past Vicksburg. He saw the lines at Lookout Mountain waver, reform, and go on up. He saw two armies wait as Lee walked into the parlor at Appomattox. It has been said that uh, Grant's greatest shortcoming, Uh, was his reluctance to use power. And there is some substance to this criticism, but I think it needs to be realized that he did not want to use power. Uh, Richard Neustadt, uh, in his penetrating book on the presidency, uh, makes an interesting comparison between Franklin D. Roosevelt and Eisenhower. And all of Franklin Roosevelt, Neustadt writes, he wanted power for its own sake. He also wanted what he could achieve. The challenge and the fun of power lay not just in having, but in doing. Uh, his private satisfactions were enriched by public purposes, and these grew more compelling as more power came his way. A uh, Political experience and private life created in him not an ideology, but a decided feeling for what government should be and where its policies should lead. In terms of fixed commitments, he was neither a New Dealer nor an internationalist, but he shared with men in both of these camps a feeling of direction. And happily for him, his own sense of direction coincided in the main with the course of contemporary history. His purposes ran with and not against the grain of what was going to happen in his time. His sense of power thus was reinforced by his sense of direction. And then President Eisenhower, Neustadt writes, uh, what kept experience from sharpening his sense of power and his taste for it? The answer seemingly turns on a single point. Eisenhower wanted to be president, but what he wanted from it was a far cry from what FDR had wanted. Roosevelt was a politician seeking personal power Eisenhower was a hero seeking national unity. He came to crown a reputation, not to make one. He wanted to be arbiter, not master. His love was not for power, but for duty and for status. Naturally, the thing he did not seek, he did not often find. Well, there are times when a country, this country, uh, needs a leader who will stir it, uh, like a Lincoln or a Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, the country needs men like that in a crisis. There are other times when the country needs men to, to count, uh, to unify divisions. And I, I, I suspect that President Grant uh, had the same concept of his office that General Eisenhower. He did not want power, he wanted unity, and maybe, maybe no other man in his time could have filled the role of unifier. The country may well have needed a man like, like Grant who sought to calm and unify. I, I think we need, we need to know more about this, of course, before we pronounce finally on it. Uh, Grant was a fairly introspective politician, And he sometimes wondered about his role and place in history. In his last message to Congress, he said, and this has got a real bite in it, it was my fortune or misfortune to be called to the office of chief executive without any previous political training. From the age of 17, I had never even witnessed the excitement attending a presidential campaign, but twice antecedent to my own candidacy, and at but one of these, was I eligible as a voter. Under circumstances, it is under such circumstances, it is but reasonable to suppose that errors of judgment must have occurred. Even had they not, differences of opinions between the executive bound by an oath, I like this, to the strict performance of his duty, and writers and debaters must have arisen. It is not necessarily evidence of blunder on the part of the executive because there are these differences of views. Mistakes have been made, as all can see, and I admit, but it seems to me oftener in the selections made of the assistants appointed to aid in carrying out the various duties of administering the government. In nearly every case, selected without a personal acquaintance with the appointee, but upon recommendations of the representatives chosen directly by the people. It is impossible, where so many trusts are to be allotted, that the right party should be chosen in every instance. Uh, History shows that no administration from the time of Washington to the present has been free from these mistakes. But I leave comparisons to history, claiming only that I have acted in every instance from a conscientious desire to do what was right, constitutional, within the law, and for the very best interests of the whole people. Failures have been errors of judgment, not of intent. And during the war, during his presidency, uh, talking with a friend, he once said, and he was talking to the criticisms made of him, he said, said, I can understand disagreement with But he said that what hurts me is to have them talk as if I didn't love my country and wasn't doing the best I knew how. And he went on to say that it had been that way in the war. People had called him butcher and fool and said he didn't have any plans, but finally he had got to Appomattox. And then he said they couldn't praise me enough. And he finished. I suppose it will be so now. In spite of mistakes and failures, I shall keep at it. By and by, we'll have specie payments resumed, reconstruction will be complete, good feeling will be restored between the North and the South, we shall be at Appomattox again, and then I suppose they'll praise me. Uh, we need a reevaluation of Grant as president, uh, one that will bring him not to his political Appomattox, but certainly to Charlotte, perhaps to vicksburg. And maybe even to five forks.